thought I'd talk today about um, a theme that comes up in Zen practice a lot and, um, and say a few words about um, the place of effort or discipline in Zen practice or even what's the experience of faith in Zen practice or is there such a thing. Um, and um, one of the, I'll just read a dialogue out from the, uh, the collection called The Gateless Barrier, which is one of the most famous collections of Zen dialogues or koans, from the case called Ordinary Mind is the Tao. Um, and the case is, um, it's about a, a very uh, famous uh, um, monk who was, when he was quite young, was talking to his teacher uh, called Chocho, and he became a very famous teacher later on in his life. He didn't start teaching until he was about 80 years old, and he lived to 100 and the ripe old age of 120, which is oh, one of the things you can look forward to as a reward of Zen practice. Where did he born? What country? So he lived around about 600 um, uh, in the century, sort of about the 7th century, I think, in China. I could be wrong. They're definitely in China. Sometimes they get the centuries confused, but around about 700. Um, so Chao Cho asked uh, Nan Chuan, what is the Tao, or what is the way? Um, and Nan Chuan said, ordinary mind is the Tao. And Chao Cho asked, should I try to direct myself towards it? Nan Chuan said, if you try to direct yourself, you betray your own practice. Chao Cho asked, How can I know the Tao if I don't direct myself? Nan Chuan said, The Tao is not subject to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion, not knowing is blankness. If you truly reach the genuine Tao, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can this be discussed at the level of affirmation and negation? And with these words, Chocho had sudden realization. So that's one of the, uh, the classic kind of um, dialogues in, uh, uh, around this um, theme of um, um, this, this sense that we all have that we are there's somehow some gap between. Um, who we are and, and what Buddha is or what the way is, that somehow we're, we're separated from it. That, um, and um, the sense in which um, there's something that we need to you know, do or fix about ourselves to get into accord with the way and to accord with reality. And uh, so one of the paradoxes of practice is that um, we, we, on the one hand, uh, you know, we do need to bring some discipline and some, it does take some effort to sit in Zazen and some discipline and uh, but on the other hand uh, the teacher is clearly saying that um, you know you'll never realize um, your Buddha nature through you know through Zazen through making an effort um, there's another similar story uh, in Zen where the um, the, the, you know, the, the, the monk or the student is sitting very earnestly in Zazen and striving very hard and, um, and the teacher starts to you know, polish the tile 
and, uh, and, the, and the student says, Master, why are you polishing the tile? And he says, I'm trying to make it into a mirror. And the, and the, and the, and the student says, how can you make a tile into a mirror? And the, the master says, how can you make a, you know, you know, how can you make yourself a Buddha from sitting Zen? You know, there's this idea that we're somehow separate from the Buddha. And, uh, and so, this, uh, so this notion of um, we can't, um, this sort of paradox between effort and somehow um, the realization of, of, of Buddha or the reality or, or God is, is something that we can't achieve by our own efforts is, um, you know, it gets played out in different religions. I'm just thinking about Christianity and Buddhism. Um, I'm not an expert in either religions. Um, I'm not even an expert in ordinary mind Zen. But um, when you think about it in, in, uh, in, in Christianity, there's kind of, sometimes you get this uh, paradox between the notion of grace, um, the sense in which, you know, We'll, 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 we'll always be sinners and we'll all, you know, this doesn't matter what we do, we would never be a cell, you know, achieve salvation uh, unless there's a, this notion of, of grace. And, uh, and, and as, as opposed to the idea of, uh, you know, in doing good works and trying to be a good person in Christianity and somehow finding our way to heaven by doing that. Um, in, and there's a similar kind of um, um, divergence in Buddhism as well. Um, in the traditional Theravada school of Buddhism, um, you know, the notion of, um, of, 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 of freedom from the wheel of samsara, the wheel of, the wheel of rebirth and on suffering, um, this notion that through right effort and right practice and uh, right ethics and right concentration and right meditation. In other words, through, through, through self-help and through diligence that one will eventually uh, achieve freedom from the wheel of rebirth. And, um, and on the other hand, so that's kind of like in Theravada Buddhism. Um, um, and um, whereas in Mahayana Buddhism, the Buddhism of uh, China and, and Japan and Tibet, and this is where the... Uh, uh, the Zen school sits as well. There is this also a notion that um, um, it's um, realization or enlightenment or is, is is cannot cannot be you know achieved by by good works and effort. You know, there's a very famous confrontation or encounter, I should say, between. The legendary Bodhidharma, the first Zen patriarch, the, the the Indian Brahmin who came from India to China in about the 400, who was uh, had a dialogue or an encounter with the Emperor Wu of China at the time, and Emperor Wu talked about all the um, all the monasteries he built and how it's how the education he provided for people in Buddhism, and uh, with the notion that this would be very meritorious. It was great, lots of merit. This notion in, in Buddhism uh, that um, through gaining merit, we will then be will be reborn in a pure land or something. Or and um, and Bodhidharma looked at him and and uh, and uh, he said, uh, "It's got nothing to do with merit." You know, um, the uh, 
It's, uh, and, and the emperor said to him, who are you standing before me? And he said, I don't know who I am. <laughs> um, um, so there's a kind of... Um, and so, um, so we get this theme being played out a lot. I mean, the sense in which if I'm trying to realize the reality of no self or no self-centered self. Um, if I'm really striving and to try and do that, it's almost like the striving itself reinforces that which I'm trying to get rid of. Mm. That's that usual paradox. And um, what, what, uh, in, in, in Japanese Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism came to be divided between two great divisions of, uh, of Buddhist practice. One was referred to as Jariki, J-I-R-I-K-I, or self-power, that is being reliant upon the self through our own efforts to achieve realization, and Tariki, T-A-R-I-K-I, or other power. And um, the notion of other power um, was particularly one of the uh, biggest um, schools of Buddhism in, in Japan is called Shin Buddhism, S-H-I-N, or sometimes referred to as Pure Land Buddhism. And um, it's also the biggest school of, um, of um, uh, Buddhism in, in the USA, I think, as well. And in Pure Land Buddhism, um, it has this similar notion to grace in, 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 in Catholicism, this notion that you know, it doesn't matter how hard we try, what efforts we make to improve ourselves will never be perfect. And um, the only way is through other, the, 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 what they in, in, in Shin Buddhism refer to as the Amatava Buddha or the, the Buddha of compassion. It's just through the, the compassion of the Buddha of compassion that uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we will be enlightened or achieve rebirth in the Pure Land, you know, different versions of this. And uh, so the notion is, uh, it's almost like they advocate a practiceless practice. The only practice they do is uh, they chant a, uh, a mantra to Am Amida Buddha. The mantra is Namu Am Amida Butsu. And it just basically means I take refuge in Amitabha Buddha. And uh, and that, that, that's the, the only practice they do. It's this, this notion of surrendering to the other power that will... And um, it's very interesting because a, a number of um, people I meet with sometimes um, have, have, um, had, um, um, have found that uh, may still be in AA. And... Uh, people who have had difficulties with addictions to alcohol or other forms of addictions. And, um, and you know, have A, A is a 12-step sort of thing that people work through. But one of the first steps is this idea that there's, not, not, there's nothing you can do to heal yourself from your addiction. And the only way you can do that is to actually surrender to a higher power, whatever that higher power means to you in AA. And uh, that's the first step. And um, so it's a very similar, similar notion. And it can be quite, quite powerful. Um, in a way, um, Zen um, 
also um, teaches that, like in that story, that somehow, you know, effort is, is not quite it, you know. So on the one hand, um, as I said before, like, um, um, there is a certain discipline we bring to practice, but the practice itself is not, the effort is not about to attain something. Um, there's another story um, that illustrates that in Zen. Uh, um, there was a, another famous 20th century teacher in Japan called Kodo Sawaki. He was a teacher in the Soto school. And uh, this is a story about um, uh, one of his students who was a very shy and anxious young man at the time, but very dedicated. And he came to Kodo Sawaki and he said, Master, I've been in the monastery now for quite some time and I'm practicing as well as I can. But I really seem so far away from my ideal. So this is this common notion that somehow, you know, we're so far away from where we should be. So tell me, if I really stick to this practice and give my whole life to it, do you think that someday I could be like you? No one's ever said that to me yet. <laughs> Thank goodness. And Kodo Sawaki said, absolutely not. I was like this before I started to practice Zazen. Zazen had nothing to do with it. Zazen is useless. So um, this was the question that Dogen himself had, the other famous teacher. Um, you know, he said that, well, if from the beginning we were all innately, inherently Buddha, why, why practice? You know, if Zazen is useless, why practice? And there's this, you know, you, it's, um, when the teacher is saying this in the context of the, of the dialogue, he's trying, to, he's trying to break through this, allude, this, the error, I guess, of making an ideal that we somehow have to attain. And so by, by saying Zazen is useless, it's trying to cut through this notion that there's this ideal out there that we haven't got to, that we'll never arrive at, will take us on thousands of lifetimes to ever reach. And um, so, um, see, there's a few traps. If, if we are only relying on effort, on our own s self-reliance, um, some of the errors and, and what one of the main metaphors in Theravada Buddhism, but it also sometimes seeps into other schools of Buddhism, including Zen, is like if we, if we swing too far to the effort side of the equation, um, one, of the, one of the metaphors that comes up is this notion that we need to purify ourselves. And um, so there's almost like a sense in which there's something faulty or bad that needs fixing about ourselves. And uh, we have to purify ourselves. And uh, so we have to purify all the negative emotions and, uh, and so on. Another error might be that, you know, this idea that's going to take us lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes to finally purify ourselves and obtain enough merit to reach nirvana. And, uh, and, um, and I guess a contemporary Western version of that is the endless treadmill of self-improvement in a secular culture. We can also get caught in. And so, you know, we... We're never going to be good enough because there's always something we're lacking in and we have to keep on. 
there, there's some of the traps and errors if you move too far to the, you know, the effort side of the equation or polarity. But there are also some traps if you move to the other side, like, like, well, what's the point of making any effort if I'm already good at it? You know? um, um, one of the, the traps of, 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 of that is that typified in what was known as beat Zen in the 50s and 60s. And there was, um, for example, Jack Kerouac, who was a famous novelist. Um, and he was, you read his novels, he's very fascinated with Zen Buddhism and talks a lot in his novels about Zen. Um, but he, you know, he was very much taken with this notion that, uh, you know, given the fact that we're already Buddha, we don't have to make an effort. We just, you know, and uh, you know, he ended up dying of alcoholism uh, at his mum's place. And so, um, another trap um, could be if we don't believe in, 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 in like, if, if, if there's no effort required, we can maybe sometimes get, can happen sometimes. I think in the Soto school where we everything just becomes very formalistic and just about rituals and just making sure that we get all of that right. And, um, and again, the practice can get a bit lost in that. And there's a nice little story that Joko tells as well, um, which I think says something about one of the errors of, of no effort um, and just waiting for someone else to save us or... Um, it's about a man who was sitting on his roof um, because a tidal wave was sweeping through his village and the water was well up to the roof when along came a rescue team in a rowboat. They tried hard to reach him and finally when they did, they shouted, Well, come on, get into the boat. And he said, No, 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 God will save me. So the water rose higher and higher and he climbed higher and higher on the roof and the water was very turbulent, but still another boat managed to make it to him. Again, they begged him to get into the boat and to save himself. And again he said, No, 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 God will save me. I'm praying, God will save me. Finally, the water was almost over him, just his head was sticking out. Then along came a helicopter. It came right down over him, and they called, Come on, this is your last chance. Get in here. But still he said, No, 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 God will save me. Finally, his head went under the water and he drowned. When he got to heaven, he complained to God, God, why didn't you try and save me? And God said, I did. I sent you two rowboats and a helicopter. Why in a book that Well, okay, that's a good question. So, um, so one of the things, um, one, two key words in Zen and Mahayana Buddhism are these notions that they're absolute and they're relative. And um, the absolute, uh, which is some, has many names, could be true self, no self, Buddha, Buddha nature. And, uh, you know, Joko sometimes uses God for that. It's just another okay. word to to talk about the absolute, the, uh, but in Mahayana Buddhism the idea is the absolute is, is something that we can't separate ourselves from or step back from and evaluate or judge. In other words, you can't affirm or negate it because it's the whole universe. Like it's, we can't, the universe cannot step outside the universe. Yeah. Um, and um, 
And so this is the notion of the absolute and Buddha really simply is that everything is interrelated, it's all the universe and the universe is perfect as it is, there's nothing you can do to improve the universe. It just functions as it functions and that's life. And uh, So when we're talking about making an effort, it's almost like saying I'm going to make an effort to become the universe. You already are the universe. Um, so it's more about what is it that, what are the barriers that that um, we get caught in that that the Buddha and, and in, in Buddhism that's usually referred to as delusions. But I mean, delusions are part of the universe as well. So, um, so it, we've got to be very careful not to set up these dichotomies or dualities between a delusion and an enlightenment. But the sense in which you get caught in these delusions, which creates the suffering, mm. and uh, so the absolute. Um, then the relative is um, the relative is this notion that we have to live our life as human beings, and human beings live in a relative world of us and them, and the world of story, and um, we have to learn how to navigate ourselves in that world. We can't, like, if you were to wake up in the morning and you had absolutely no sense of identity, you're just completely empty. And on the one hand, it might be wonderfully liberating, but on the other hand, it might be very scary and a bit disorientating. Um, so on the one hand, we want to realize you know, the absolute emptiness of everything in the sense that it's all just the universe, which is constantly changing. But on the other hand, to live a life as a human being, we need to have those skills to realize this is a sort of temporary identity I'm, 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 you know, I'm using at this point in time. And... Um, so this is this is one way to understand this paradox of effort and no effort. Um, so from from the it's 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 about keeping the the two perspectives all the time in mind. So from the perspective of the absolute, absolutely, you can't make an effort to become the absolute because that's who we are. Um, but on the other hand, from a relative perspective, um, it's important. To make because being human beings, we need to bring some discipline and some effort to our practice. One of the uh, contemporary Soto teachers, Shunru Suzuki, was fond of saying, You're perfect as you are, that's the absolute perspective, and you could do with a little bit of improvement, that's the relative perspective. Um, so it's holding them both together, it's not an either or thing, it's and, yeah. And if we come at change and at practice from, yeah, we're just, we're okay as we are, we're perfect as we are, we can't improve on what we are, and we can make a little bit of an effort, because being human beings, if we don't make a little bit of an effort, then, you know, we might fall into uh, um, addictions and, and, and so forth, and get, you know, and the laziness, whatever it, whatever form it takes, um, or where we where we trip ourselves up. Um. Mm. But then, um, mm. couldn't, couldn't it be that, that, you know, and the fact that the Buddha said we all have inherent Buddha nature, which to me isn't about being perfect, but it's about having certain qualities like compassion or patience and so on. So if it has those inherences, isn't that? For example, like being born, say, with a musical talent, you're born with that musical talent inherent in you. But if you're never going to bother to practice the piano, 
it's always going to be latently there, but you're never actually going to make use of it. And I think of the Buddhist qualities in that way, that I have them within me. But if I'm not going to sit or do anything about cultivating them, it's like a potential that I have that I'm not developing. So I, I just use that mm. as a... Because I find all that other stuff is too complicated, this or that. I just... I just well, that, that's fine. I mean, that's good. I mean, that's still... An, that's still a, that's that notion of the... But, I mean, from a relative perspective, yeah, we have these potentials and we practice and we train ourselves and we can bring, through practice and training, we can bring these potentials to fruition. That's fine. That's a really good understanding. Um, as long as we don't fall into the trap of somehow, well, right now we don't have it as well. So um, just the fact that I'm a flawed human being, I'm still... Buddha, you know, I might, uh, I may have a personality which is flawed, but I'm still Buddha. I'm not separate from that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, and we can do with with some trainings and, and some practice to cultivate various characteristics, including, you know, compassion. So, which comes to my sort of final resolution of this is that when you come to the um, the practice thing, I think the important thing is to what does commitment mean to us, you know, and um, that's why uh, the, the vow is about this commitment we have to all beings and to, to, to be you know, kind and compassionate to all beings, to awaken all beings, including ourselves. And so it's that, it's that commitment to me that is the, uh, what, what, what um, hangs it all together. Because um, 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 I think without, without the commitment, uh, we, we can easily um, just yeah drift away, and um, and so and and it's through that commitment to the practice that um, over time I think does does develop certain characteristics such as um, uh, such as compassion, uh, and compassion could almost be a byproduct of our practice uh, without us trying, but through the practice it it, it becomes more and more open to us. And this could be some, something we could cultivate as well, especially towards ourselves. Um, another characteristic from commitment could be, you know, uh, endurance or tolerance or the ability to accept at varying levels of difficult feelings and so forth. Um, and um, and another, another characteristic of practice could be... Um, Sometimes in Zen centers it manifests as neatness. That's, <laughs> but it's the sense in which we're in relationship to everything, not just with people, but with everything that we're working with. So like the respect and the attention that we give to our dishes when we're washing the dishes, the respect and attention that we give to our bed and making our bed, or the, the attention that we give to the environment we live in. And, and hopefully the attention that we give when we're with another person, you know, in the gift of listening. And um, so over time, through, through the commitment, these, these, these qualities manifest. And um, one of the challenges, you know, like in, in lay practice is how do, we, how do we keep ourselves on track in the sense of how do we, how do we, how do we manifest or what do we need to do to help us, from, you know, remain committed and because um, um, you know if, if, if 
if I if, if I just left my personality to, to itself, I, it, it would probably get me into trouble. So it's almost like it's been the, a commitment for many years now of just showing up. And uh, sometimes the commitment is just to show up, just to show up to the group practice, uh, just to show up every morning on my cushion. Um, and, um, and sometimes I might not feel like coming along to the Zendo on a Sunday morning and giving a talk. But like, it's a commitment that, that becomes really the, uh, the foundation in some ways. And uh, what, what, do you have any ideas about in your, in your own practice or in your own life? Uh, how, how does commitment work for you? Uh, whether it's Zen practice or whether it's commitment in a relationship or the word commitment itself. Um, does, it, does it have, what kind of meaning does it have for you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, Joko was fond of saying, "What, what is Zen? Just do the next thing in front of you." Um, and I, again, but you can apply those two perspectives to commitment. So, from the ab- absolute perspective, commitment is being absolute present 
this moment, whatever that moment is, is our life. And we want to be awake in that moment. And, uh, and then from the, the relative perspective, commitment is about, you know, exists in time. And it's a sense of a schedule, a sense of a, a commitment to come along to the retreat in two weeks' time, or the commitment I'll get up every morning at seven o'clock. And so we kind of like do work on that in that way as well. And, um, hmm. For me, I think when you talk about commitment, well, for me it's about where I put my attention. Yeah. As opposed to focusing of attention to a certain thing um, means that I have you know, commitment to that. And, and if I can do things regularly and repeatedly, that uh, seems to help. Yeah. So that's something if I can start um, doing something like yeah. Every time it's on, if I can, or whatever. Yeah. So in, in, in Zen practice, is there some sense like commitment is equivalent to living by vow in a secular uh, practice? That would mean like it's a, it's a commitment to living our values, you know, because mm. the vows are about values, about what, what we want to, and the commitment is, I guess, the way in which we, we want to embody those values. Mm. And so. So living, living by commitment or living by vow rather than by living on impulse or, or mm. what our feelings might be saying at that particular mm. time. Because being know, reactive. I've, yeah, or what I'm, the outside culture is telling you. Or what the outside culture is. Yeah. 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 Okay, very good. We'll leave it there.